Knowledge is the key. CannabisRadio.com is here to keep you in the know on Just Say No. Did you know there are over 100 medical conditions that can benefit from cannabis therapy? Just Say No talks to patients who have used cannabis to treat their medical symptoms and create a better quality of life. Each week, we will tackle a chronic condition by talking to patients, doctors, and researchers with the goal to helping you live, learn, and thrive. Just say yes to Just Say No. Now here is your host, Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com, and welcome to Just Say No. Each week here on Just Say No, we evaluate, investigate, give a thorough look at all the various diseases we think cannabis therapy can help. Today on our show, we continue our conversation with Dr. David Cassaret. Dr. Cassaret is a physician and professor at the Perlman School of Medicine in Pennsylvania. He's also the author of the new book, Stoned. Hello, and thanks for joining us, Dr. Cassaret. Thanks. It's great to be with you. What about topicals? Do these do anything different? I've tried a few in the past, and oh, it doesn't seem like anything but lotion to me, but maybe, maybe I'm just not feeling it. Yeah, you know, it's weird. If you look at the research that's been done, not a huge amount, but some, that research mostly on mouse models, because my skin is um, kind of similar to ours in terms of structure. Pig skin is similar to human skin too. But in laboratory tests, trying to figure out how to get THC and CBD to be absorbed through the skin. It seems like the skin is really a pretty tough barrier, meaning it's hard to get THC and CBD dissolved through the skin. There's a couple of caveats there, though. One is that I've met plenty of people who swear by it. So are they diluted? Is that the placebo effect? Or maybe they're onto something? I'm not really sure. Whenever you talk about absorption, you're always talking, though, and this is the second point, about a concentration game. So even if only one in a hundred molecules is able to get through a skin barrier, you know, if you put lots and lots of THC and CBD in a lotion, put a lot of that lotion on an area of the body where the skin is fairly thin, like the inside of the arms, for instance, as opposed to the shoulders or back, there are fewer barriers. Yeah, you know, it's possible that you could, you could manage to get enough of those molecules through the barrier to have an effect. In general, though, so I wouldn't say it doesn't work or it never works, but in general, it's probably not the most efficient way to get those molecules into you. Yeah, I have a question about that, not to get too deep into it, but when something breaks through the skin barrier, is it more targeted than if you ingested it or smoked it? Let's say I have a pain in my elbow and I rub something on it. Does the absorption just go into that area or would it be all over your body like a Tylenol or something? Yeah, that's a good question. It's probably a little bit of both. And okay. the balance of which it is depends on the molecules themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's certainly some molecules like dimethyl sulfoxide, which is used as a, an industrial solvent. It's also used in, in laboratory experiments because it's a very, very efficient solvent. Then it'll go through barriers like the skin, it'll go through cell walls, and it'll just travel almost like a ghost. doesn't even slow down when it goes from one cell to another. Um, And so that travels throughout the body pretty quickly, but it also spreads locally. So it's sometimes used to provide local relief. You rub it on the elbow and then it disseminates throughout the elbow. It's often used as a homeopathic arthritis remedy. But THC and CBD don't do that unless they're, they're bound to something like DMSO. They don't seem to be able to cross membranes very quickly. So my best guess, and this is really just a guess, 
is that there may be some additional local effect, but probably what's happening is those few molecules are getting into the bloodstream, the capillaries right in the skin, and then going throughout the body, keeping in mind that you're not really getting too many of them through that barrier. So you've only got a few molecules that are winding up in the capillaries, and you've got those few molecules that are being disseminated throughout the body. So any one cell in your body is probably unlikely to see any of them. So again, not a real efficient way to go. Gotcha. So let's talk about efficient ways to go. What do you think the best way to consume marijuana is? I mean, we have vaping, we have tinctures. I personally use a a tincture for myself. But vaping, I was interested to read that CBD and THC actually have a different combustion temperature. So if you're vaping, you may be vaping more of the THC and less of the CBD. Do I have that right? Yeah, you do. So they don't combust, but they evaporate at different temperatures. It's sort of like right, alcohol right. and water have different evaporation temperatures. Alcohol evaporates, boils at a lower temperature. So you can actually boil off alcohol if you keep the temperature of the alcohol-water mixture below what it is required to, to boil off water. It's the same principle that yeah. by adjusting the temperature of the vape device, whatever you're using, you could dial in more or less THC or, or CBD. Whether that matters clinically, though, I think is a bit of a question still. Certainly, whether you get a lot of THC or a little THC matters clinically. It'll definitely affect how you feel, but that's a, an overly scientific way to do it. If you ask me, you could just take two puffs instead of four puffs, and you will have effectively dialed back the concentration of of THC. The effect that CBD has on modulating the effects of THC, I think is still pretty theoretical. Although there are some people who believe that by adding more CBD to that THC-CBD mix, you can dial in more mellow effects, more of a body effect, potentially, and less feeling of being high and, and euphoric. From what I can tell, that's still kind of hypothetical, although lots of people swear by it. Yeah, I think when I look to the future, I think I think about people being more comfortable taking pills than smoking something. A lot of people just don't want to smoke anything at all, even if it's vaping or it's vapor that you're smoking. But the thing about edibles is it just takes so long to metabolize in your system and you, you don't know how high you're going to get. If you were to take marijuana, would you suggest tinctures or something that you'd be able to feel the effects within the first 15 minutes? It's a great question. I think it depends on what somebody's looking for. And again, I, I live in a state where it's illegal, so I can't actually give the advice I'm about to give you. But I think you're right. A lot of people like pills. And for that reason, they like edibles. And a lot of older people, I think I spoke with in researching Stone, by older, I mean over the age of, of 70, really turn to edibles because it feels more proper and more appropriate. It feels more like a medication. It feels less like a drug. You know, Mm -hmm. you could take a square of chocolate a couple hours before a meal to improve your appetite. Um, That to many people who are perfectly fine with taking medications for blood pressure or whatever are okay with, with taking edibles. I think edibles will still in one way, shape or form will still continue to be popular. I think edibles will probably get better yeah. as we get more sophisticated in figuring out what 
THC and CBD and maybe other cannabinoids do, being able to get edibles with very defined amounts, concentrations, and, and ratios of, of those two. And I think for some symptoms like sleep or loss of appetite, I think edibles are still fine. You really don't need the fine-tuned dosing that you would get, say, with a vaporizer or with a tincture. Right. I want to move on a little bit to conditions. As a doctor, I think you relay in your book an experience you had going to a California doctor, probably not the best one that I've ever read about, but similar to my experience where they barely looked at me and it was about a six-minute process. And I think in your case, they shuffled you right into a dispensary to buy something as well. My question to you is, if we look at this as holistic medicine, should we be seeing a doctor Do we need a doctor's care in order to help us down this journey of taking marijuana? You know, it's a great question. I would back up a little bit and take a running start by saying we should be seeing somebody who can give us information about what this stuff does. We should be getting information about how to use it, how to use it safely. We should get some information about risks and side effects to watch out for. We should be getting education and counseling. Does that have to be a doctor? No, I don't think so. Especially since you know, right now, a lot of doctors don't think about this. They don't want to think about this. You might realistically get better advice from a good dispensary than you would from, say, an oncologist right now. So I think saying that person has to be a doctor, I'm not sure that's true. I think somebody who understands disease processes and symptoms and physiology would be helpful and probably part of the team. So I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but if I were a patient who had cancer, was using chemotherapy, had bad nausea despite treatment, I would want on my team an oncologist who knew what that chemotherapy agent did as well as somebody else who knew how cannabis could fit into the therapeutic strategy. Somebody who knew enough about cannabis to be able to be intelligent about it, but also somebody who knew enough about medicine to know how it would fit. Sometimes that's a doctor, maybe sometimes it's a really good nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant, or a nurse, or some really, really good dispensary staff. And I had a chance to meet at least one of of those who really, really knew his stuff. So I'm not sure who that should be, but I have a pretty good sense of what patients need and it's going to be a while before there are enough well-trained people out there to give patients what they need. Yeah, it's interesting that this is the only drug you need to see a separate doctor for right now. And I know it's all just part of the legal landscape of everything out there right now. But it does seem like we're moving towards this being more holistic in the future. We'll see what happens. We need to take a break. But when we come back, we'll talk more with David Cassaret. We will be right back once you get to know our sponsors. shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's order. Less heat, (laughs) more flavor. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com. 
helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at CarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Just Say No, spelled K-N-O-W, is back with more conversation about curing and healing with cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com, and we've been talking to Dr. David Cassaret about his new book, Stoned. Some conditions I wanted to go over, we have a little bit of time left. But pain, pain is probably the number one thing that people go to a marijuana doctor for a recommendation for. And you said it, that you've seen evidence that in neuropathic pain, it has some value. But what are the other types of pains? There's somatic and visceral pain as well. Why does it help neuropathic pain? There are probably two answers to that question. In general, this is an oversimplification, but in general, I tend to think of, of two kinds of pain, meaning neuropathic pain and then everything else. And I think a, a pain specialist would probably be a guess, but I've, I've summarized <laughs> most of their field of, of research and, and work in those overly simplistic terms. But sure. I think for most of us who practice clinically, we see a patient with pain and we try to figure out whether there's a component that's neuropathic that's, that's due to nerve injury because, as I said before, those are syndromes that, that tend not to respond well to opioids and we have to treat them differently. For everybody else, there are nuances. Certainly, there are various approaches. There are lots of medications available. But in general, those sources of pain, whether it's due to advanced cancer or a broken ankle or everything in between, tend to respond pretty well to Tylenol. Acetaminophen respond often well to non-steroidals like ibuprofen. They usually respond really, really well to, to opioids like morphine or, or fentanyl. Not everybody, not all the time, but that trio of drugs plus a couple of others managed to get a lot of people very, very comfortable often, often very quickly. So why doesn't marijuana work for those types of, of so-called nociceptive pain? Well, I'm, I'm still not sure we can say it doesn't work. Because neuropathic pain doesn't respond well to opioids, a lot of people like Barth Wilsey, who I mentioned before, decided when they started studying medical marijuana for pain, decided to go after neuropathic pain because that's the kind of pain that often gives us a lot of trouble when we're trying to treat people. 
Whereas, you know, somebody with a broken ankle, like we're no, we know they're going to respond really, really well to, to morphine. Um, there isn't that fairly urgent need to come up with, with new treatments as there is for, for neuropathic pain. So there haven't been as many studies in regular nociceptive pain, at least to my knowledge, uh, for medical marijuana. But those studies that have been done have been, I think, to my way of thinking, kind of unimpressive. Mm. And also some laboratory studies, the one commonly used lab study of pain uses heat, uses a piece of metal that's been heated to a temperature that most people find uncomfortable. And then in a typical lab assay of pain, people are given various drugs to see whether it changes people's experience with um, that stimulus, whether people find it less bothersome, whether they can stand it for a longer period of time. And whereas drugs like opioids dramatically have an effect in those laboratory studies, marijuana seems not to. So it may be that there's some effect, but it doesn't seem to be nearly as great as, as far as I can tell as, as other drugs like non-steroidals or, or opioids. Speaking of cannabis being able to kind of numb your senses or reactions, I'm not sure I'm using the right terminology here, but with PTSD, there was a study using color blocks where somebody got shocked if the color blue came up and then they were given cannabis and they were still aware that that shock was coming and it made them nervous, kind of a PTSD effect, but that was numbed by, by the cannabis. When we talk about PTSD, is that what we're talking about, about reacting to stimulus? We are. So in general, when you're talking about PTSD, you're talking about intensely emotional memories that are linked to a particular stimulus. So if somebody's in a car accident, is trapped in a car for 15 or 20 minutes after the car rolls over, may for years afterwards feel very anxious and panicked in, in closed spaces. That's an oversimplification, but not a bad summary of PTSD. So it has to do with emotional memories. The study you mentioned was done by a woman named Christine Rabinak. A couple of slight changes. So the, the study she did was, as you said, showing people colored squares. Then she would subject those research subjects not to a shock, but to a loud noise. So not painful, not uncomfortable, but kind of surprising. And she gave them not cannabis, but pure THC. And what she found was that in general, as people are exposed to these squares, they develop this anxious response when they see squares that are normally associated with a loud noise. As she stopped giving them that loud noise, in general, people's anxious responses started to decline, as you do when you realize that there isn't going to be that loud noise, that response. What she found, though, was that those people who had gotten THC began to normalize their response much more quickly. And that's interesting to me and to her because it suggests that where a lot of people use marijuana to treat their PTSD symptoms, what she's going after is something that's far more ambitious. And I think she'd admit more, more theoretical and more speculative, but the possibility that the ingredients of marijuana, whether it's THC or CBD or both, might actually be used in the treatment of PTSD, might be useful in trying to uncouple that memory with memory of a stimulus, like a colored square or a car accident, or a trauma with whatever emotions came up. And I think she'd be the first to admit that she's doing this in laboratory studies. It's not ready for prime time. It's not ready for use in, in therapy, but she's mm. trying to unpack PTSD, how it works, so we can understand how to, to begin to treat it at a molecular level. Speaking of cars, <laughs> maybe not car wrecks, but we know that 
cannabis is effective in treating nausea for the side effects of cancer or AIDS treatment. Is the nausea you feel from that different from the nausea you feel riding in the passenger seat of a car? Yeah, it is. So there are a couple of ways that we can become nauseated. One is through some receptors that are like serotonin that occur in the GI tract. So if you have an obstruction, sometimes if you have a viral illness, sometimes chemotherapy works through this route too, those receptors in the GI tract fire up and cause a sensation of nausea. The sensation of nausea is the same, but can be caused in other ways. For instance, sometimes if you take an overdose of a drug, that drug builds up in the brain and and fires receptors in the so-called chemoreceptor trigger zone in the brain. That's that's kind of a, a toxin screen or a toxin alert, if you will, which also causes nausea and vomiting. And then the, the sort of nausea that you get so all three of those are become nauseated through very, very different pathways, but the end result, the, the nausea and vomiting part, looks the same. So whenever in my field of palliative care, when we're treating somebody with nausea, you know, we never just reach for one drug. We always try to figure out, well, what's, what's causing this nausea? Is it a side effect of an opioid like morphine, which happens through the, the middle ear? Is it a side effect of chemotherapy, which happens to the GI tract, and we'd reach for for different drugs. And it seems like maybe, probably, cannabinoids work predominantly through that GI tract, which explains why it's, it's huh. fairly useful for nausea that's associated with chemotherapy. There may be other mechanisms too, but that's been the one that's been studied best. Well, I have time probably for one other quick question, and it's something I am unclear on. Does cannabis reduce tumors in ca- cancer patients? It's probably a really long answer, but I, I think We've heard with breast cancer um, especially that that's what it's doing. It's either helping the cells die and the tumor to get smaller. What do I have right about that? The short answer is we're not really sure. The longer answer is in test tubes, in cell culture, in, in laboratories, yes, it does seem like cannabinoids have some effect on cell division, on cell growth on cell angiogenesis, the process by which tumor cells create new blood vessels, which they need to grow. So in test tubes, both at the molecular level and at the cellular level, it seems like cannabinoids do slow tumor growth. There's a long, long, long step between saying that and actually using it to treat cancer. In fact, I wound up interviewing a woman in Colorado outside of Denver who had a very, very early, very, very treatable form of lymphoma with cure rate probably of 90 or 95%. And she decided to, instead of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, put her trust in concentrated cannabis oil Mm -hmm. and just died about four or five months ago as the book was going to press. Mm. Decided to try chemotherapy at the last minute, but it was, was too late. So yes, there are these stories out there and it may turn out that someday cannabinoids will be useful in cancer therapy. I wouldn't be surprised, actually. But honestly, anybody right now who has a form of cancer for which there's good treatment available, by all means, feel free to use cannabinoids in addition to that treatment. But I wouldn't put all your your hope and trust in, in that cannabis oil, at least right now. So I wanted to ask you one other question. I know maybe this might be a sore <laughs> subject, but you started a Kickstarter campaign to start a website to crowdsource people's experience with cannabis. Do you think people are 
interested in that right now. You know, that's a similar thing we're trying to do with MJWellness.com is, is give people a forum for discussing how cannabis has affected their symptoms. Are people looking for this solution? What do you think it feels like out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I still think people are looking for it. I honestly think that the Kickstarter campaign was not the best approach. I think Kickstarter works best for products that people can help support, develop, and then have. I also frankly think I didn't manage it well. I put the Kickstarter campaign out there and then was on clinical service for about three weeks taking care of patients and basically oh ignored it, which is not what you do with Kickstarter campaigns. Right. But I do think there is interest and not just stories and anecdotes, but I think some real hard evidence with ratings of symptoms. I'm working now with a venture capitalist who wants to take over that website, merge it with another product that he and others are, are creating to try to connect patients with each other and with physicians. So I'm hopeful that this idea will take form going forward. Kickstarter just wasn't the, the right way to do it. But honestly, I really do think there's a need, you know, whether it's marijuana results or MJ Wellness or, or probably others that will come out there. I, I, we certainly don't need just one. I would be delighted if two or three years from now, there are a dozen platforms that are out there that are all helping people to learn from other people's experience and honestly helping researchers to learn. You know, there's a lot of research that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. We could start doing clinical trials right now, do 20 clinical trials a year, and it would take us decades before we got the data that we needed. So we need some form of patient crowdsourcing to give us advice about where we should put the greatest emphasis in, in doing clinical trials. And having some form of, of website where people can describe their symptoms, what's helped, what hasn't, I think that would be really helpful in making research to be more efficient. So I certainly hope that moves forward on a number of fronts. Well, I think your book, Stoned, has taken us a long way towards that as well. It's the best book I've ever read about medical marijuana use, and it's an entertaining book. I look forward to whatever you write next as well. Really wanted to thank you for joining us today and sharing all this research that you've discovered. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking. Love your questions. Love your show. Thank you so much. We are out of time. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Just Say No. Again, we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Cassarette, and for our producers for finding these great guests. You can download episodes of our program by going to CannabisRadio.com or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. You can follow the show on Facebook and Google+. For more information about our guests and to read more about patients using marijuana to control their symptoms and to talk to me, go to mjwellness.com. Make sure to pick up a copy of David Cassarette's new book, Stone. Join us next week when we'll tackle more conditions that can be managed using marijuana therapy.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.